Please be advised that this podcast is intended for listeners ages 18 and up. Today's episode discusses BDSM practices at length and what might go into a risk-aware consensual kinky relationship. beloved weirdos, I'm Cory Ritten, and welcome back to another episode of The Weird Sex. For today's episode, I spoke with author Harper Mitchell about her first novel, Threshold. It's the first in a projected series of six novels called Soup Group. Threshold is a BDSM-focused romance novel that dropped at the end of 2018. It's available now on Amazon in paperback and Kindle editions. I read the book, and then I talked to Harper. Harper is a Wisconsinite, and I am not. So we spoke via video chat. Thank God for the interwebs. Harper talks about those books and what's to come. With that being said, the audio quality might not be what you're used to with two people sitting in the same studio, but uh, get over it. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about your sexual history. What can you tell me about where you came from sexually? Um, repressed for sure. <laughs> really afraid to experiment, afraid of doing the wrong thing. I'm a very anxious person. <laughs> and I think that that really informed who I am sexually. And part of my self-discovery has been not only becoming comfortable with myself, but becoming comfortable with my desires and knowing that two or more consenting adults, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Absolutely. So does this repression come from just like a personal upbringing thing from maybe a religious perspective or something else? So when I was very young, one of my parents walked in on me with (gasps) my boyfriend at the time. And I was not interested in having an encounter for many years after that, because I was horrified, even when I went to college, even when I didn't live in their house anymore. It was very much like, oh, God, I never want that to happen again. And there there was a lot of shame around intimacy. Gotcha. (laughs) When you started to work your way through your repression, since you are now a writer, were you working through it by writing down the desires? Journaling was one of the things that was suggested to me in therapy and already being a writer. I I made the decision to be a writer when I was about eight years old. And... It's a, it's a way to process and it's a way to saying things out loud can be very challenging, especially when you, when there is so much shame and there's so much anxiety associated with just acknowledging them. Mm -hmm. So writing them down gave me the opportunity to look at them and to acknowledge that they existed without the perceived shame of vocalizing them. And that was the first step in figuring out what I wanted and what I needed. Definitely. As a younger person, when did you start experimenting with like these little bit different types of desires? I wasn't until I was in about my my like still technically my early 20s, but I was like 23. It was later okay. in life that I was willing to acknowledge what I wanted and what I what excited me. Did you seek out a partner who might have been able to provide those desires or did you kind of make it work not initially my my first partner who was capable of uh providing for those needs uh this person 
we were friends before we were involved with one another. And so it was one of those, like, I made a, just enough jokes that this person kind of picked up on like, hey, maybe we might be compatible in that regard. So it, it, it was sort of accidental, but there was, uh, alongside that shame was a lot of like, I have no idea how to find someone. And I know that particularly being a submissive woman, it's very challenging as far as like safety. Yes. And so being afraid to ask for help and being afraid to step out of my comfort zone because I knew that there could be some very serious consequences if safety was not listened to. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I've been in the same boat. You kind of, you kind of are like, let's try and do this together and hope that nobody dies. Oh, um, God. Where, yes. <laughs> where do you go from there? When after that relationship kind of fizzled out or ended, did you, armed with new knowledge, seek out someone specifically in the BDSM scene? I can comfortably say that uh, my now husband was not in the scene at all when we first met. And uh, I did not expect it to be a long-term thing. I really liked him. He really liked me. We went out, we had drinks and I was like, yeah, I kind of dig hanging out with you. This was about a year after a very serious relationship had ended and I was just devastated. So I wasn't sure if I was even ready to be, seeing anyone seriously. And after we had become intimate with one another, uh, I, I said to him, you know, there are some things that would make me really excited if we did, but I don't want to mm -hmm. make you do anything you don't want to do. And, you know, five years later, <laughs> eight years later at this point, but uh, some, some time later, I was like, you know, I hope that you're not just doing this for me. I think I'd be kind mm -hmm. of uncomfortable with that. Like, I hope the exploration is as satisfying for you as it is for me. And he, he said, I feel like you opened up such a new world to me, but also I feel that I would continue to seek this in any relationship if we were no longer together. So he kind of fell into it too. <laughs> sure, sure. That's super comforting, isn't it? To hear someone say, you know, yeah. thank you. If it weren't for you, I, I wouldn't know about this, but now it's a part of me. Especially well, as a I, submissive woman. Yes. And I, I did get very lucky that a few friends of mine who completely by accident and again, just kind of like, I made a joke and they were like, wait, you too? And so mm -hmm. I kind of found my community in my hometown by accident. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I moved that I started seeking out a larger community and uh, people that I could talk to, particularly because I'd, I'd left the place where I grew up and and reestablishing friends was somewhat difficult. I mean, it, it is the older you get. And so wanting to meet people who I had things in common with. And right. part of that was finding uh, other members of the BDSM community. Sure. Are you still an active member of, of the local scene, even though you're married? And we go to demos a lot, particularly mm -hmm. because it's I don't want my books to be about just what I like. I think that to accurately represent the scene, stepping outside of your comfort zone. So maybe something that I wouldn't feel comfortable doing, but something that I want to know how to do safely, something I want to be able to accurately describe. We go to demos a lot to, to talk to people and to see things. And that can be very intimate in a different kind of way, just to, to share those experiences together. Still, we still actively attend things, but not 
uh, as much as we used to, and we have not done a demo or anything like that. So g- give a little, take a little. Definitely. That's what's so great about this scene is you don't have to participate. You can mm-hmm. kind of just like go be in someone else's world for a little while. Yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, I'm allowed to do this. This is awesome. I'm learning so much and I'm seeing so much. Uh, that's yeah. my favorite thing about the scene in general is going to parties, not even having to dress a certain way or do a certain thing, but just watching people spend time together is yeah. is so cool. Yeah. And I'm not even a I'm not even a voyeur. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Threshold specifically and in the bigger picture, Soup Group, because Threshold is the first book in a series called Soup Group, correct? Yes. Yes. Maybe I'm I'm already probing too far, but how many of these Soup Group books do you anticipate publishing? Uh, so far, there's it's a planned series of six. So the second one is finished. It's in editing right now. And the third one is about half done. Um, wow. The plan has always been six, but I've been toying with the idea of a seventh and an eighth. If I can make them seem like they were part of the initial plan. I don't, sure. I don't like when I'm reading series and it's like, okay, obviously the series did really well. And the author's like, okay, how many can I get under this umbrella so people right. will read it? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, it's like, oh, do we have to do this? Exactly. So I don't, I don't want that to happen, but so far it is a planned series of six and uh, maybe more if the opportunity presents itself and if, if it would fit. Okay. As far as Threshold is concerned, how much of that kind of tumbled out of you autobiographically? Not a lot of it is autobiographical. I will admit that I have a type and uh, <laughs> Caleb is... Dark hair, blue eyes, tattooed. That's, I mean, yeah, same. That's that's what Jamie looks like. So, <laughs> when my mother-in-law read the book, she was like, uh, "I, I, Caleb sounds a lot like my son." And I was like, "No, I just have a type. It's not. It's not. You don't even make it weird." <laughs> so, so, admittedly, there is an ideal in my first male protagonist. Mostly, where it was coming from, however, was the lifestyle is not accurately represented in the media very often and I don't want to shame any other authors because that's not a way to do things however there is one series in particular that has done very well that a lot of people believe it, who a lot of mainstream readers really enjoyed and it's not right and it's not an accurate portrayal of what a true DS relationship is like. And it is abuse masquerading as BDSM. And that's not cool. <laughs> and so I got very passionate about this one particular sure. day and was uh, shouting uh, as I want to do when I'm feeling very, very upset. And uh, my, my husband, uh, Jamie, said to me, I think that you forget sometimes that you are a writer. I know that you don't write books. Typically I write plays, but you should write something and and fix it. And I thought, wow, I'm I'm really embarrassed that I'm in my thirties and I never thought of that. Like the the thought never crossed my mind that there was actually (laughs) something I could do about it. I was just so mad. So it started out from that. And a good friend of mine who said, I, I really want to read something that is romantic and sexy and funny. I want to laugh a little as well. And that, those two things with the third edition of feeling like a lot of 
BDSM books, even when they are an accurate representation, it is kind of isolated. You just get the story of the two people who are the main characters. I wanted to place Evie and Caleb in a community. Mm-hmm. And that's why the whole series is called Soup Group, because it is about people coming together and having conversations about their sexuality in a way that is not shameful, in a way that it is a community of people supporting one another, because that's an aspect of the BDSM community that often gets left out of even the best representations we can find in literature. Definitely. Well, and that's what I loved about reading your book is it was kind of like, you know, certain folks in Evie's life didn't necessarily know that she was experiencing BDSM related desires. But when she kind of said, well, I have to tell this person now, they were like, okay, that's so cool. Or that's interesting. I've never thought of that before, which I don't know anybody outside of the scene who you tell them, oh, I'm into this. And they go, oh, cool. <laughs> like, it's usually like, what? <laughs> so that's really great. In the tradition of, of romance novels, usually when there is your first novel, you have your two main characters. And then as characters are introduced, it's kind of like, oh, there's going to be a book about them, isn't there? Um, <laughs> is, is that also what you plan to do? Yes. Okay, so that makes sense that you'd have so many because there are so many people in Evie's life that support her. Yes. That have kind of interesting things going on of their own. Maybe they're gay or maybe they dance erotically or things like that, which I'm, I'm really excited to read more about the people in her life because they seem like real people. Every single one of my beta readers said the same thing. And that oh, is awesome. uh, something I'm so very proud of is that I didn't, I, I love the melodrama aspects of romance novels. Like I love the kind of heart pumping, the parts that are not just the sexy parts, but also like the high danger and the, the ridiculousness that goes into that. I do love that, but I also wanted, I wanted there to be real moments and I wanted the people to feel real because that's how readers connect with who they're reading about Mm -hmm. is when they're real people. And so I think that's the thing I'm most proud of at this point is that a a lot of the feedback has been, these feel like real people. Yeah. Kind of on a a darker, more spoilery note, um, (laughs) there's a little bit of abuse that goes on, not as an active part of of the novel, but kind Mm -hmm. of in Evie's past. Is that something that you have real life experience either yourself or hearing about it from a friend or is that something that you kind of had to put in there to serve as a counterpoint to the uh, series that shall not be named (laughs) I do have not to the same extent as Evie but I have I do have one past partner who was not the best dominant there was some manipulation and some more shame that came with, and not something that I asked for. That is not to say that if if someone is into disgrace, then that's totally great and that's great for them and their partner. But there was some shaming of me for some things that I wanted and the frequency that I wanted. And being told that as a submissive, I was not allowed to communicate those desires, which is absolutely not true. And so very, very minimal compared to, you know, the magnificent conflict that is Evie and Jacob and mostly for, you know, the sake of counterpoint, but also the, the sake of high drama. That is where that comes from. And also wanting to point a finger at not just 
abuse masquerading as BDSM, but also that it can happen to anyone. And if I can be super pretentious and and quote my own work for a second, but there's a moment (laughs) where Evie says, if he'd ever struck me, if he ever hit me out of scene, I would have left right away. And that there's this block that we have in our minds of like, well, we know what abuse is and abuse is when you're hit and you don't ask for it. But Mm -hmm. it's so much more than that. And I wanted to point at more than just physical, but also at emotional manipulation and at breaking someone down is not the same as cherishing their submission. That was a big reason why there is that counterpoint of Jacob and his abuse. Yeah, I think many of us, um, I mean, personally, I've been in these uh, vanilla love relationships that you try and add the BDSM element to, and it doesn't go so well. And mm-hmm. then the relationship ends and you say, you know what, I'm going to find someone to fuck and I'm going to find them on FetLife and that'll be great. And then you have an encounter and then you realize either during or after that it was not good, that you feel Mm -hmm. taken advantage of, that potentially if you wanted to, you could call it rape, even though you didn't know what to say at the time. And unfortunately, that's the plight of submissive women is either you have almost like the good guy or you have this guy who you say, I want you to rough me up. And they say, okay. And it all flies out the window from there. But it's almost like the kind of folks who were willing to put hands on some people are not willing to sit down and have a conversation. It's it's difficult to to navigate that world that I think a lot of people go to romance novels for Mm -hmm. advice and there's none to be found. Are you trying to kind of sneak some advice in there for people? I am. Uh, Actually, the whole series is going to have, I hate to moralize it, but (laughs) the whole series, uh, each, each book is going to have some sort of subplot of things to just be aware of. And, you know, it's not always as, I mean, even, even though in Threshold, Jacob doesn't, the majority of the abuse is emotional and breaking Evie down, but it can be even warning signs, red flags can be even more subtle than that. And so I do plan to talk more about different levels of what to watch out for and how submissive people in particular, but also how dominance can be better and how submissives can keep themselves healthy and safe. That's great. I think it's almost like you need to be an outside party, like a novelist or something like that, to say comfortably, like, hey, doms, you should be responsible for this person. That's what you've agreed to be. Mm-hmm. And if as a submissive woman, you confront your partner or even just a friend or an acquaintance who is doming inappropriately and unsafely, mm-hmm. they're just, you're someone's slave. You belong to someone else. Why are you even speaking to me? I, I have no time for you. Mm-hmm. But you, there have to be rules and, and morality, even though arguably we're playing with some of that. But no one trusts anyone to say so. Yeah. There's, for people who don't, who've never been in a communicative and healthy DS relationship, there's this kind of lack of understanding that there is so much talking. There's so much communication and so much, here's what's okay, here's what's not okay. And what might, what is okay today might not be okay tomorrow. And so we need to have constant check-ins. And it's the kind of unsexy amount of, 
really simple conversations and sometimes really in-depth conversations. And, you know, it's like, okay, I've been with some people who need everything in writing because that's how Mm -hmm. they retain information. That's great. You know, let's sit down and let's have a conversation. Let's actually write up lists and things and let's exchange paperwork. And I'm all about that because, again, that means that there's always some place to go back to and say either this needs to change or this can stay the same and the series that shall not be named I will give it one thing and one thing only (laughs) the comments that people made about the amount of paperwork in the first book I was like yeah but that's like pretty much the only thing that was effective that was right but there's a way to make that sexy there's a way to make it intimate to have those conversations which is something I'm also striving to do with the series is to not it's not just for some people yes it is sitting down at a table and just having a conversation but for other people it can be made fun it can be made an intimate experience to share those things and to talk about your wants and your desires and the things that you don't want and the things that might be okay sometimes and the things that are never okay My favorite thing about DS relationships personally is the paperwork. I fucking love just like, give me a spot to sign. Where do I sign? I think, (laughs) I think that's so sexy. And so when I first read the first book of the series, when they started to go into the paperwork, I was like, oh my gosh, this is many, many pages of this. And this is amazing. But my fear as I was reading that is, I wonder how many people are going to use this as source material to write up their own sort of contracts. And I do wonder if this holds water. Again, but there's really not, unless you're already kind of involved in this scene, there's not really anywhere to go for advice. So you have to pull it straight from the pages, as it were, and move forward that way. So it's almost like all of us who are interested in BDSM, who learned about it one way or another, it's this very solitary practice to begin with Mm -hmm. that you have to open up and say to your partner or partners, this is what I'm interested in. But in order to create protection for yourself, you have to tell more people, I'm with this person. I'm going to look like this tomorrow, maybe. Do not be alarmed that I am purple. (laughs) (laughs) And it takes a lot of trust to tell people not only that you're maybe going to have semi-permanent or permanent marks, but like why? Yeah. I think it's awesome that the people like you are trying to make it all make sense. Like these are normal people doing normal things. Actually, a coffee shop is involved. Isn't that a normal place? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and, And that's the spirit of the whole thing is not just, I think accessibility is a really important factor that gets overlooked a lot. And a few of my friends in the community had said, you know, I loved your book. It just felt very vanilla, it, it comparatively. And I said, well, you know, it's dipping your toe in the water. And that's the first book of any series is about setting up the world. And so going full bore right away was not my goal. And I do plan to to write about some more extreme plays and practices in future books. But part of helping people who do not participate in this lifestyle to understand that it is healthy and it is safe when done properly and that there's, we're, you know, we're, we're normal people <laughs> doing normal things in our everyday lives. Part of making that reality accessible for people who don't practice is to start small and start slow. And so that's another reason why going to demos is so important to me to accurately represent these other things, things that maybe 
are on my hard limit list that I still want to be able to talk about. I still want people to have knowledge of that, like, oh no, there's absolutely a safe way to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, that's the accessibility for people who don't participate in the lifestyle and more information for people who might be curious about it and don't know where to start as far as developing their own community of, of support, because it is really important to have someone, at least one other person that you can say, you know, don't be alarmed if I'm purple tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Speaking of dipping the toe in and working toward more kind of extreme kinks or what have you, there is a person who makes a little bit of a, a cameo in the novel that you have Jacob, who is the, the prior relationship for Evie, and then you have Amy, who's the prior relationship for Caleb. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, she actually has been banned from playing publicly because she plays too hard. And I was kind of curious where that came from and how that might progress, especially with regard to focusing on more extreme play. So one of the things that I noticed with the first draft was that there was so much pressure put on the, or so much, so much focus was put on dominants who don't practice properly. And I have met a fair amount of submissives who don't practice properly as well people who have pushed their doms to do more things than they are comfortable doing but because they are the submissive they feel like they you know it's well it's my body you should do it it's fine mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. i've met one person in my travels who often refused aftercare and that the kind of sub drop is more common than anything else but like dom drop does exist there is a level mm -hmm. of intimacy mm -hmm. that's required for the dominant as well after the fact and so I didn't want it to be a picture that just painted that, you know, only doms are ever bad. There's no mm -hmm. possibility that if you're a submissive, you're doing anything wrong because that's just not true. And so I wanted to show that it was possible to be a submissive and to push the boundaries of your dominant. And just because mm -hmm. there is a power exchange that's going on, it doesn't necessarily mean that the submissive can do no wrong. Additionally, it was important to me that the female villain was not motivated by a broken heart. <laughs> oh, sure. And that it was not a situation where it was, well, you rejected me and now I've gone crazy. It was, you isolated me from my community because I perceive you've done something wrong, not you were trying to keep other people safe. And that's why I'm angry. So I get very, very frustrated by the representation of women in any literature. Oftentimes, female villains tend to be motivated by, you know, a, a lost love or a broken heart rather than having a, a, a more real reason to have gotten angry and being isolated, having something taken away from you of that magnitude. I don't see myself as an Amy, but I could see myself being very angry about my community being removed from me. I can't recall a novel, a romance novel, or any sort of novel in that regard where there's been a female villain who isn't motivated by love lost. And so I think that's really interesting. It's one of those things that maybe would never have occurred to me if you hadn't said something, which <laughs> goes, to, goes to show just how normal it is to be like, ah, yes, the only reason a woman goes crazy is over a man. 
and even just like going crazy obviously is is a whole yeah. different problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah would you be willing to divulge a little bit more of the extreme or the direction that you're going in um as far as play in your books absolutely um in book two we're going to talk a little bit about disgrace and um the kind of external shame that goes with that when someone is disgusted by what you want and how it's yes I want you to shame me but now you're shaming me in a way that is actually meant to hurt me and not meant for play purposes um we also talk about bouncing um the use of fire wands and the safe way to do that (laughs) and in book three a lot of electro play just an alarming amount of electro play (laughs) (laughs) the sex nerd in me is like ready to explain all this to you but read the book the first note that i received when i sent out my first eight chapter data readers like i'm not upset about it but an alarming amount of electro play. <laughs> so that's great. I don't read a ton of romance. Um, my sister actually has her own romance podcast and is the kind of person cool. who I think re- reads a ton of romance. Um, <laughs> and she's the one who kind of got me into romance, but, but I pretty much exclusively read BDSM romance. And I have read some pretty intense stuff, but I don't think I've ever read anything that incorporated any sort of fire play or electro play. Is that something that you noticed too? And you thought, you know what? There's space for me to write about this. It's a lot, a lot of discipline, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Book one threshold is about a lot of discipline and uh, a lot of bondage, which is great. And that admittedly seems to be what most people are curious about. And so I, I do think that there's a market for it. And I think that it's exciting to read that material. But I also think that the more extreme stuff could be something that people are curious about. And if it's, if it's written about in a way that makes it accessible and makes it kind of takes away the mystery, like I feel like a lot of what makes it shameful for people is the mystery surrounding it. It's like, I don't understand anything about this. And so, you know, I'm confused. I must not like it when if we just talked about it, if we just sort of pulled pulled the curtain back and said, you know, this is what's happening here. This is why this is exciting for me. It's a different form of pain. It's easier, uh, particularly with electroplay. It's very easy to regulate the sensation. And so it's not always super easy to regulate the sensation of, say, a switch or a riding crop. And some people find more comfort in that regulation in knowing exactly what they're going to get every single time. Just it's different levels and it's different, different parts of the world. And I don't, I didn't want to write six books about the same thing. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a great thing to do because a lot of authors of any type say, well, that worked. um, So I'll just keep doing that. Everyone (laughs) loved that. And I think that's probably fine. People keep buying it, so why not write it? But it's almost more of an educational perspective when you say, well, I didn't want to write the same thing over and over again. There are different types of people, and let's explore that. So that's great. Thank you. Are there particular authors that you admire, that you read a lot of, or that you were inspired by when you started writing romance? I read a lot of historical uh, I've purchased fewer and fewer BDSM romance novels just because I find if it's done correctly, it tends to be the same thing. It's kind of a copy-paste situation. New people, but the same stuff. 
However, there is a marvelous author named uh, Tara Sumi, who is just, her submissive series is phenomenal. And I highly recommend it to anyone, particularly because it is done so, it's done so much better than uh, some other things that maybe I have a problem with. <laughs> but as far as other romance novel authors, I do, I read a lot of Lisa Kleypas, a lot of Tessa Dare. I picked up my first bodice ripper when I was about 15 and I think I've never been the same <laughs> and I uh Jamie says all the time that our house is overrun with them and I guarantee that there are like three romance novels historicals on the back of our toilet right now just but just that's where they live um, I do uh Julia Quinn as well she's uh still a historical romance novel author her work is a, a little less uh, sexy. There are still some sex scenes, but it is one of the things she's inspired me so much with is that her people all feel real. And even though it is this historical Regency setting, I feel that I'm reading about someone that I could go, who I could go and get coffee with. So that's that's one of the things I love about her so much. I do read books other than romance novels, <laughs> but you know, just the Kurt Vonnegut. Terry Pratchett, you know, Gaiman, like the, the usual suspects. <laughs> they take a little bit more time to read those literary novels do where you can yes. just breeze through a romance novel in like a day, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of the awesome thing about it. You feel so accomplished. You're like done. Well, and I think there it's something, something nice about even with the melodrama being as high as it is, it's like, oh, okay, I got to go to work now. I have to walk away from this. If I, crack open a Vonnegut, there's a pretty good chance I'll lose an entire day and go, oh God, how did this happen to me? What is going on? But with a romance novel, if the alarm goes off, then it's like, okay, I can set this aside. You'll be waiting for me when I come home. Being interesting and engaging while still being able to walk away from it is really nice. I My day job is in professional theater. And so I work a lot and I work long hours. So I need to be able to walk away from something and not have it not be super preoccupied, which is why starting the Outlander series was the worst possible thing I could have done for myself because (laughs) now it's literally all I think about and I just want to come home and read. (laughs) Since you brought up your background in theater, it kind of rears its head a little bit in, in the first novel, in Threshold. Is it going to continue to be a theme? The next book is about Charlie, and since she also works for Nova, we'll actually be at the theater more often in book two. Wait, who's Charlie? Who's Nova? Read the book, read the book. Which is called Throttle, but that is the extent of our dips into the theater world. I didn't want my two great loves to converge too much. (laughs) It kind of happened by accident Mm -hmm. because it's something I know about, and that's it's it's particularly when you're stepping out on a limb for the first time with a with having written books before but never for with the intention of publishing and having it, it's been such a long time my master's degree is in creative writing but for the stage and the screen and so it had just been so long since I'd done something that wasn't going to be 90 pages long you know you got to keep your at your first act 30 pages that's like that's the rule Whereas my first draft, a lot of people said, you know, it reads like a movie. There's a lot of dialogue and I have no idea what anyone looks like. And I was like, oh, God, okay." (laughs) I got very, very submerged in that, like, this is a thing I know about. So I feel comfortable writing about this, especially when 
writing about something or, or a medium that I'm not super duper experienced in. And as far as my, my professional writing career, I had never attempted to take that step into novels before. So I did fall back on some, some things that I already knew about. So book three will be about Tessa, Tessa's book. And um, she works for an art gallery. So we'll be, we'll be there more often than not. As far as your theater experience, do you tend to stay behind the stage or are you more on stage? Um, more behind the stage. For one of the companies that I work with right now, um, I did have a, a smaller role in the show that we're performing right now. My bachelor's degree did study theater when I was an undergrad. And so I was going to be an actor before I was going to be anything else. But a very well-meaning person said, if you can do anything else, you should, because the world is terrible. It's cutthroat. And, you know, if you don't move to one of these four cities, the chances of making your career in acting go down so significantly. Whereas if you become a technician, you are more likely to get paid. You're more likely to be able to find work wherever you end up living. And so I was like, I like the idea of this being my job. That's all I care about. I want to do what I love. Yeah. So that was the reason I, I switched to being a technician instead. Do you find that there's any relationship inside you um, between BDSM and creativity, let's say, whether it's performance or, or writing creatively? Do they kind of stoke the same fire? I actually find that submission gives me an opportunity to not make a decision, whereas in my day-to-day life, I have to call a lot of shots. And sometimes it's, you know, what color shirt should this person wear? And sometimes it's a much larger decision that has, you know, financial repercussions for the company. And so having such a high-pressure job on the regular is it's really nice to to give up control when I have it so often. And that is, I think, a lot of where the submissive desire manifests is that it's this, I don't want to come home and be in charge of anything else because I made decisions all day long for 16 hours. Now I want to come home and maybe just sleep or have somebody else make the decisions. As far as fictional representations of of submissive women or even submissive men, I think it gets misconstrued a lot of the time Mm -hmm. that submissive women are all day long just kowtowing to whomever is around, keeping their eyes on the ground. Um, And it's just, I don't even know how that makes any sense to be the same person all day. Uh, (laughs) Seems impossible. (laughs) And so I think it's important when real submissive women have a conversation such as the one that we're having now to say like, hey, I do this because I want to, but also because I'm tired of doing everything all the time. I need someone else to do this. I need to feel taken care of and not like I'm the one who's taking care of everyone all the time. Yup. And I think that's what's interesting about the idea of a submissive man, too, is like, obviously, a submissive man is in his regular life making decisions all the time. That's just the way the patriarchy works. And yet male submission is this thing that's just like disgusting to so many people. 
And it's like, well, what do you expect? Do you think that this person goes to bed making decisions, wakes up making decisions and never gets tired? What It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and it's it's the idea that these I, I tried really hard with with Caleb was to show that, yeah, like he owns his own company, but also marketing, you're oftentimes at the you're at the leisure of whoever you're working for. So you may be in charge, but you're getting told what somebody else needs a lot. And you are providing what that person needs a lot. You are the submissive in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so with dominant anyone, but particularly with dominant men, oftentimes they do have menial responsibilities or they answer to a lot of different bosses they answer to a lot of different people and they're not always in charge of their everyday day-to-day whereas when they have the opportunity to take control it is the same just in reverse of a submissive woman making decisions all day long and deciding i want someone to take care of me or a submissive man or anyone a, a submissive them it's the the desire often does stem from a place of what is the opposite of what I'm required to do all day long. And so in other book series where someone is a high powered CEO, more often than not, that person is going to be submissive in the bedroom just because they spend their day making decisions. And a lot of consideration went into Caleb's character development in hinting at the fact that he's at the will of other people during his everyday day-to-day life and that that is where his dominance manifests in the bedroom. And you touched a little bit earlier on your personal struggles with anxiety. Is that something that is also kind of tied into your submission? Oh, yes. (laughs) I... My brain never shuts up. Never. And it's pretty consistently, even more so now that, that I'm, I don't, we, we've not talked about it yet. I'm pregnant. <laughs> I cannot take anxiety medication right now because it could be detrimental to the fetus. And so having that feeling all the time of like, oh God, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, what's wrong? That goes away. That turns off when my brain goes quiet, when I descend into subspace and there is nothing but just calm. (laughs) And so the first time I ever descended into subspace and I realized, oh my God, there's a place where my brain shuts up. What? (laughs) Yeah, give me more of that. (laughs) Yeah, subspace is awesome. It's my favorite thing. (laughs) And like, I often say that like, I, you know, I, maybe I'm obsessed with sex. Maybe I'm intellectually just, I want to know everything about sex, but it's only because sex is the only way I know how to get there to this place where I feel taken care of and like, I can just relax and like, I'm okay. And jury's still out on whether or not I would try a different way if I knew it would get me to the same kind of place, but it's not about And this is really hard to articulate sometimes, I think, to quote-unquote vanilla people, is that it's not like you you go home and you're like, fuck me, and like, oh, it's just, it's boring, and except for, you know, I, I wear this piece of clothing and I get touched with this item, and that's what's different. No, 
what's different is it's not sex anymore than talking is sex or anything is sex. I don't really understand a lot of what vanilla sex is for because (laughs) it doesn't do that. (laughs) No, I I mean, I guess it's fun, but. Yeah, I will admit that I thought that I might be asexual for a really long time because I did not enjoy intimacy. And then I was like, oh, that's why. Okay. <laughs> the world opens up. Like, I think that it, it is very difficult to articulate. Like, it's not just, you know, I don't come home and, and shed my clothes. And, you know, it's not some wild rough fuck fest when I get home. Sometimes it's just, oh, you're going to, you can tell I'm really stressed out. So you're going to say, why don't you curl up in my lap and I'm just going to pet your head for a little while. And it's like, oh, great. Yeah, no, that sounds freaking fantastic because I had a horrible day or because I'm super tired or whatever. And yes, it does play into our, our sex life as well. But it's more than just a 24 hour rough fuck fest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like this the sexy version of, of what a 24-7 relationship is. Um, and obviously not everyone is cut out for a 24-7 relationship. Not everyone yeah. is interested in that. But when I was actively participating in a 24-7 relationship, one of the most grounding things for me every day was I would either tie or untie my partner's shoes. I basically like I'm the one who helps you before you leave to go do this other part of your life. And I'm the one who welcomes you home by by taking your shoes off. You know, it's a not only a gesture of submission, but also of like, let me be a part of the first step toward relaxation for you. Yeah, absolutely. People who imagine what a BDSM relationship is or a master slave relationship or a 24 seven relationship, they're not going to imagine someone tying someone's shoes like that's like they're your child or that's like you know they're an old person in the context of a 24-7 relationship everything has so much meaning that it's impossible to articulate unless you've been there absolutely absolutely there's a very big difference between the nights where Jamie cooks dinner and the nights where I cook dinner because we work opposite schedules. And so we don't get a ton of time at home together, which really sucks. And so we do need to make use of what time we do have together. And so on my little like three hour break in the middle of my work day when I do day job and then I do night job he will cook dinner and it's just sort of like, yeah, we'll sit at the coffee table and we'll watch Netflix together and kind of chat about what the week's going to be like. And then days when I make dinner are days when we have more time to spend with one another. And it's this opportunity for, it's not only a gesture of submission, but it's also this, I made this meal for you because I love you and because I wanted to show how much I love you. And I wanted to show you how much you mean to me. So I cooked you this meal that we're going to sit and eat together as a gesture, not only of my submission, but also of my love and the intimacy that we get to share on these rare days that we get to be together. And so, like you said, that's, that's, you know, that's something that maybe a lot of couples do where it's like, oh, it's your night to cook. But the, what that means in a 24-7 or in a DS relationship or in any kind of relationship within the lifestyle is something so much more significant. And so, I feel like there's more acknowledgement in from from my from my good dominant partners when I've cooked a meal for them. It's not been 
in vanilla relationships, it's like, oh, cool, you, you cooked dinner, thanks. And then life goes on. And so having small things appreciated on a very deep and intimate level is very important. And so it, it enriches the what time we do get to spend together so much more. And again, something that maybe someone who is vanilla wouldn't think about the intimacy of preparing a meal for someone else. Do you anticipate with your schedules already being a little bit difficult to, to match up all the time that after there's like an infant involved that you'll be able to maintain the sexual relationship you have? I'm actually going to be in, in just two more weeks now, my day job will be no more. I will be actually able to spend more time with him because we will be, I will be only working my part-time evening job. Um, That is yes. In preparation for having the baby childcare is so stinking expensive. So (laughs) in preparation for that and also, yes, so that we can figure out a way to maintain a level of intimacy in our marriage without feeling forced and without it feeling rushed. And also just because we we find ourselves in a position for me to be able to do that. (laughs) Sure, sure. So one of the things that I, I have been asked by so many people who've read the book or who I've had conversations with when our alternate schedules come up, one of the questions I get asked a lot is like, how do you guys make that work? And it's like, no, most of the time it's not awesome. And it is work Mm -hmm. to make it possible to still have intimate time together. And coming back to paperwork, man, nothing sexier than a schedule. If I know there's a day coming up and I'm like, this is our day and it's on my calendar and I like, you know, circle it and highlighter and I'm like, don't make any plans this day. We're going to have this whole day and it maybe it's our only day for two weeks, but we're going to have the whole day together. We make plans and sometimes it's, you know, we're going to clean the house together. We're going to, we're going to clean the house for this, for this long. And then we're going to go out and have a meal together or, you know, we're going to go catch up on shopping or whatever. And then this is the time that we're going to have for play. And that's going to be, you know, at this time. And so we'll both feel relaxed and not necessarily weighed down by work and prioritizing one another. And that's the, really the only reason I'm not panicking, which is rare for me, um, <laughs> about uh, introducing an infant into the mix is that, I know that we prioritize intimacy with one another when we can. And so even if there's stretches of long, of long stretches in between when we're able to be intimate with one another, we do, we do plan ahead and we do communicate like this is the day that we can have this. So let's prioritize one another for that day. And that's been a constant in our whole relationship for the last eight years. So not too panicked about that. Because it's such kind of a, it's not a talked about situation to say, I'm in an adult relationship that's a consensual DS relationship, and this is how I make it work, and this is what we do. There's almost no one to look up to in real life. Do you have any folks that you know, just kind of from maybe the scene that you've been in most recently, or over time that you go like, I need to remember that this is how they did it. This is what I'm striving for. Do you have that kind of example? I do. In fact, when we found out we were pregnant, I asked a couple friends of ours. I said, I am just wondering, like, you guys have, I won't, I won't name the exact number, but they have a lot of children. They have more than four. Let's just wow. put it that way. 
and I said, you know, how do you guys, how do you make it work? And they both said, you know, it's, there are times when it's really difficult. There are times when we fight about it. There are times when we have to plan to go to, you know, a demo in another state so we can get someone to watch the kids and we actually remove ourselves from the house and, you know, we make a weekend of it, but we make it work by continually communicating with one another. And these two people are so madly, like just insanely crazily in love with each other. And you can see it just in every conversation they have, the way they look at each other, even if they're not looking at each other, they sort of gravitate toward one another in a room. And so, you know, having as many children as they do, but still having a healthy communicative DS relationship that makes me say, okay, so it is possible <laughs> first mm-hmm. and foremost. And, you know, it's not always going to be easy, but it's never been, it's never been easy for us in the first place because it's, it, it is uh, difficult to align our schedules. And so, Um, It really comes back to prioritizing one another and knowing that, you know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, this is actually something that I need. And so treating it like a need, maybe not the same need as, you know, feeding yourself or bathing or sleeping, but it is still a need and it deserves the priority of being a need. Yeah, I think what you're saying about it being a need is so important. And also like having the reminder, um, either an example in the community or some other um, type of reminder that I I can have this, it is possible, um, is so, so important because, I mean, obviously as a younger person, you struggle with your sexuality and whether or not it's okay or Maybe you feel like you found one partner who can do this with you or for you, but what are the odds you're going to find another partner? And so I think that an example in the community, like an actual real live breeding couple is so super, super important because it's not a fictionalized version of something. It's, it's real hard work, but it, it is necessary to feel like a whole human being. Yes. And that's why communities necessary even if you're like the most introverted person in the world you just need to find a real person and go okay they're doing it this is normal this is wantable um (laughs) it's so easy to lose yourself in your head and go like i'm fucked up and gross and no one will ever love me yep (laughs) the step of even telling so i i won't name names but I know she would be comfortable with me saying a very good friend of mine in college. She and I did not discuss our proclivities until one day, I think I had just like a little bit of booze in my system. And I was like, you know, I've never told you this, but I'm going to tell you this thing. And I, and I said, I'm, I'm a submissive woman. And she said, Oh my God, I am too. And I'd known her for God, like six years at that point. And we'd never talked about it, not once. And we had this massive thing in common that we both felt like we didn't have anyone we could talk to about. And then suddenly, oh my God. And so we stayed up, (laughs) just sort of chatting with each other. And 
she'll still call me and, and check in once in a while and just be like, how are you doing? How are things, you know, talk to me about what you're doing right now. And I'll talk to you about what I'm doing right now, because at the very least, I know that I have a community in her and she knows she has a community in me, but something that because of this idea that it's something we don't talk about, we just never discussed it with one another. And it never occurred to her or me to be like, you know, this is a person I trust. This is a person I tell all kinds of strange things to like actual weird things, you know, the, the weird obsessive anxiety nightmares that I have more comfortable talking about that than I was about something that brings me pleasure. Something that makes me feel like a whole human being, like you said, was more, we're more willing to talk about, you know, past trauma than I was about this thing that is integral to who I am and, and brings me so much joy and so much balance to my life. And the same for her. We just never thought that it was something we could talk about. And we did. And we found a community in one another. And I've taken that particular experience and tried to move forward with it as best I can to remember that there is a certain level. And, and the couple I spoke of earlier if I hadn't, we were doing a show together and there was a bullwhip in it at one point and someone was like, who knows how to crack a bullwhip safely? And I said, I do. Just like not even thinking <laughs> about what that might make someone or anyone in the room think of me. And the female half of this couple came up to me and she said, why do you know how to safely crack a bullwhip? And I said, well, I'm a submissive woman. And she said, oh my God, me too. <laughs> And it's, it's some of the most strange conversation starters that we get <laughs> from, from the things that we know about and the things that we might reference, not even realizing like, oh, this isn't a fully accessible thing. Only certain people will understand what I'm talking about. It's letting go of the shame we have to find that community because with a community of support, like you said, we see it functional. We see it happening in the real world and we know it's an, it's an attainable thing with work. And also being able to talk about yourself, being able to talk about aspects of your life and connecting with other people, especially when something is not, you're not supposed to talk about it. That is such a release in and of itself to know that you have that community and know that you have that support. So the support of your community is, is really, really important. And that's, I mean, that's how we say it's, it's also how we stay safe and how we take care of ourselves is to, to talk to other people. Cause when you're close to it, you may not necessarily always know that something is okay or not okay. Right. Yeah, there's something that's so awesome about kind of a BDSM inside joke in mixed company and kind of like looking and going like, uh oh, you got it. Okay, you got it. <laughs> and and then like having a conversation later, like, hey, I just kind of noticed that when I said da da da, you made this face and I so I am a submissive woman and you seem to be this. And it's you know, either like, I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong uh, <laughs> because of the way you reacted. So it's safe. This is a safe space. Um, and then being able to say like, I mean, like, let's say you have like a, a schoolgirl outfit fetish and go and then you say like, oh, man, it's just so hot when this I've never felt more understood. Someone is like, yo, I also have the same fetish. It's, it's the best feeling. Yes. <laughs> there anything else you want to talk about is there anything you want to plug yeah, buy my book <laughs> when does throttle come out 
throttle will probably hit in about June is what we're aiming for. However, that does depend on when I'm going to let it out of my claws. I do get a little crazy at the end of the editing process because I have anxiety. Um, so we'll go in and I'll be like, all right, it's ready. And then a day later, I'm like, it's not, it's not, it, no, no one can look at it. It's terrible. No one wants to read what I know. It's bad. I don't want to do this anymore. No. Why did I choose this for my life? Um, but we are aiming for June for throttle. And we are going to be, uh, Jamie and I are going to be at the Wild Wicked Weekend in San Antonio, Texas at the end of February. It is a romance and erotica convention. I will be signing books there. It's going to be really awesome and super cool. So if anyone is attending that, they can come to my booth and say hi to me and they can meet Jamie and it'll be really cool. And as always, for, for indie artists, if you buy the book, please review it. Verified purchases on Amazon, uh, their reviews can increase the visibility of the book online. So, Awesome. So yeah, anyone who's interested in what Harper's been talking about with her, her first novel, Threshold, and all the novels to come, read the book, buy the Kindle edition, buy the paperback edition. Those are both available now. I've read the book. It's a really great book. I mean, it's I'm not just saying that because she's on with me. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me, Harper. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been wonderful. If you couldn't tell just by the interview, Harper is absolutely fabulous to speak to. If you're in the San Antonio area, hit her up at Wild Wicked Weekend, February 21st through the 24th. She'll sign your book. Find Harper on Instagram at Harper S. Mitchell and on Facebook as Harper Mitchell. You won't regret it. For more romance-related podcast content, check out Romance Rob. It happens to be my sister's podcast, and I may have been a guest once or twice but seriously it's awesome if you love to hear authors and readers talk about romance it's the podcast to listen to that's romance romp r-o-m-a-n-c-e-r-o-m-p if you enjoyed this or any other episode of the weird sex leave a five-star review on itunes and tell a friend you can also visit the website at www.theweirdsex.com for the full archive of episodes or to volunteer yourself as the next person I speak to. You can go to the tab entitled Wanna Get Weird to fill out a form or email share at theweirdsex.com, S-H-A-R-E at theweirdsex.com. As always, thanks to Iambic Speedometer for our music, to Harper Mitchell for speaking with me, and to you all for listening. I'll see you in three weeks.